Welcome to the Evidence to Impact podcast, the podcast that brings together academic researchers and government and practitioner partners to talk about research insights and real-world policy solutions in Pennsylvania and beyond. I'm Michael Donovan, the Associate Director of the Evidence to Impact Collaborative here at Penn State. In this episode, we'll be discussing the fascinating world of knowledge mobilization. We'll dig into what exactly that means and the implications for the larger world of science, governance, and human connection. We have a little different setup today as I'm joined by a whole host of wonderful guests coming in from all over the world and all over the country with some of the most intriguing titles that you will ever come across. First, I have Taylor Scott, who serves as the co-director of the Research to Policy Collaboration, beaming into us from North Carolina. Next, we have our three folks based in California. We have Alan Daly, based of the Social Opportunity Space Network Lab, aka SOS Net Lab. He serves as the Chief Executive Dreamer and Professor at the University of California at San Diego. Next, we have Mimi Lockton, SOS Net Lab Chief Project Catalyzer and Postdoctoral Scholar, also at UCSD. And lastly, from our California contingent, we have Anita Kadouf. SOS NetLab Chief Swiss Army Knife and PhD candidate at UCSD. And last but not least, we have Martin Reim, SOS NetLab Chief Data Wrangler and Postdoctoral Scholar at the University of Regensburg in Germany. With that lengthy introduction of our guests, we can begin with just a brief introduction from folks just about their work and their respective roles. Taylor, would you start us off? Sure. Thanks for having me. I think something that Alan and the SOS Net Lab and my group share is this sort of vision for connecting the scholarly scientific community for outward public benefit. And I, I think that for the work that we're doing, we're pretty focused on policymakers specifically so that we can understand how do we achieve that sort of public benefit of research by supporting policymakers' use of evidence in their policy development, ultimately improving the effectiveness and impact of public policies. So what we do is really drawing on best practice and theory that has been otherwise sort of descriptively studied in our field, and that is that we need not only to write papers, but we need to actually be actively involved in connecting people between research and policy spheres. And so the research to policy collaboration operates by connecting or facilitating connections between researchers and policymakers in a timely and relevant manner. We start by identifying what current policymaker priorities are so that anything that we're doing is agenda neutral and really driven by existing policy opportunities. And then we look for researchers who have related experiences and facilitate a sort of matchmaking process, bringing them together in a rapid response and meetings, both via Zoom and Hill Days. Ultimately, we're hoping for ongoing collaboration between these communities so that we can support any kind of policy development goals at different stages of the policy process. I think that the social aspect of the work that we're doing of trying to develop better connections between researchers and outside the academy is really relevant to the work that the SOS Net, Net team is doing. So maybe I can hand it off to Alan. Great. Thanks so much, Taylor. So, and thanks, Michael and Melissa also for having us. It's a real privilege to be here with Taylor. I think very highly of her work and the work they've been doing in terms of connecting to policymakers. I think it's some of the most important work that's going on right now in our field. So it's a real privilege to be here and to share a little bit about the work that we have underway. As you heard Michael describe, uh, we specialize in coming up with weird titles <laughs> for ourselves. And part of that is to suggest that we have to be thinking about this really big problem we're all trying to solve in really different kinds of ways. And the really big problem we're trying to solve is that there's so much wonderful knowledge that exists in the world. And there's so many human beings in the world that really need to access that knowledge. And sometimes those two don't come together. 
And it's a real problem. It's not just a problem in the education policy space and education in general. It's a problem in climate, in law, in health, in a wide variety of areas. So in some small way, we at SOS NetLab are trying to address that problem. So the title is, first of all, a little bit weird, this SOS thing, like we're screaming for help, which at times we do scream for help, but that SOS stands for Social Opportunity Spaces, because we think the intersection between audience, content, and community, where those three intersect, is a social opportunity space. It's a space where people can come together and to learn and to share. The net bit of SOS NetLab stands for networks. We're going to do our work through social networks, and our work is connecting these knowledge folks with folks that need this knowledge that they're producing. And finally, the lab bit is for laboratory because we're going to make a whole bunch of mistakes <laughs> along the way when we're doing this. So what we're really trying to do is best captured in this sort of analogy that we always talk about. No doubt many, Michael, you or many of your listeners have been on Amazon before and you've purchased something. And let's say you went on to Amazon and you decided to buy a DeLorean as one does. <laughs> so you're checking out where your cart with your DeLorean and Amazon says to you, oh, Michael, you could also use a flux capacitor. And it makes that recommendation to you based on your series of shopping experiences and those other folks that kind of look like you in some way. So hold that idea in your head that we think about that as our recommender. Now, here's the other side to it. The other side of it is somebody said, oh, you know, Kevin Bacon, you must also know Denzel Washington. And so this is done through a social network, right? How people have these connections. So that's a social network idea. So SOS NetLab at its core in an attempt to make some progress towards this knowledge into action space that we're all wrestling with is going to marry this idea of a recommender with this idea of a social network. And when those two things get together, we think that there's real potential for recommending knowledge resources for folks and connecting them to other people and human beings in the same way that Taylor and her team does in her work. So we're really trying to make some forward progress on this and we're working on both the knowledge side of it and researching what's going on around knowledge mobilization, but we're also building this technology of which we already have a first version that we've been testing out. We can give you more details about how we're going about doing that a little bit later on, but that gives you at least this big, broad, vague idea of what the heck SOS NetLab team is doing. And I should say, none of this work happens without my three dear friends and colleagues who you're going to meet in a few minutes from now, because it's really a team effort that makes this happen. And I know it's the same in Taylor's shop as well. There's a really incredible team of folks that are working there that I've had the privilege of also getting to meet and getting to know a little bit. So I'll turn it back to you, Mike. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I wonder if just for the sake of a quick time, do we want to have Mimi and Anita and Martin just do a quick rundown of your roles in this larger machine as well. Thank you so much for the eloquent and succinct kind of summation of all this work. We're going to get, we're going to dig down into all of these commonalities as well as we go, but maybe Mimi, do you want to just explain kind of your role in the larger team? Yeah, as the chief project catalyzer, I try to make sure that the research and the practice that were the the research and development pieces are all moving in a coherent direction, that all of the pieces are working together. And we're starting in an education space. I was a teacher. I come from an education background, also drawing on that knowledge so that we can have good relationships with our partners who are in the education space as well, trying to keep all of that coordinated together. Great. Welcome to the show. Anita, how about yourself? A Swiss Army knife. Let's see about this. Yeah. Thank you, Mike, for having us. Yeah, the Swiss Army knife. It's not just, I didn't get this title just because I'm Swiss. I also got it because they say that I can do a bunch of things and do it well. So I'm here to support Mimi in her work as well as Martin as good as I can. I'm a mixed methods researcher. So I live in two worlds in quant and qual. And I think that fits very nicely with the Swiss army knife that I have like several tools that I can use to support my team. I'm also a former teacher. So I can also draw like Mimi on my experience in the education space. Wonderful. Thank you. Welcome. And Martin. 
Yes, thank you. So as data wrangler, I'm responsible for collecting data, analyzing data, basically the tech person. My background is in labor economics, so I like looking at the world in numbers. So that helps with this particular job. So then, yeah, that's basically it. So I'm responsible for making sure that the tool we're building is using the correct algorithms and does doing the things that we wanted to in collaboration with our partners. Wonderful. Welcome. I'd love to hone in a little bit on some of crucial and kind of common dynamics between both SOS NetLab and the Research to Policy collaboration. This is kind of core to this piece of knowledge mobilization that you talked about, Alan. Let's talk about really what that is. Where is knowledge kept? What is that? What does that mean? And what are the implications for a society that has ineffective or less successful knowledge mobilization? Alan, you want to start us off there? Sure, I'd be happy to. And then my team can correct all the ridiculous things I say, which is another part of their job descriptions that they didn't describe. So I think the first thing is understanding at some level what knowledge mobilization is. And and Taylor's work and our work over, overlaps in this space. So it's this idea that there is knowledge or resources or practice that kind of exists somewhere in some space. And that has to be moved from one space to another space. So now all the people in your audience that are doing research work and knowledge mobilization have just keeled over for the most vague <laughs> lack of specificity in that definition around knowledge mobilization. But that's the basic idea. So often what happens in that is that knowledge resides in one location and doesn't move to another location. We in the academy are famous for generating and hoarding knowledge. We really want to get that stuff out into the world, but that isn't necessarily part of our training or that isn't what our universities reinforce us to do. We're reinforced to produce knowledge, right? And we hope it gets out in the world, like that's our intent, but it doesn't always make its way out into the world. And what's interesting about that to me is that these are generally, for Taylor's place and my place, these are public universities supported by public dollars, right? So the work that we're doing is for the public good. So the deep, important question I think Taylor's team and our team is trying to focus on is how do we move knowledge and resources in support of the public good? And each of us are trying to do it in a slightly different way, but we both intersect on this idea that this is an important endeavor in and of itself. So while Taylor's group and our group are trying to also produce knowledge, we're highly focused on this idea about how do we get that knowledge out into the world. And I think one of, this, one of the tensions that we experience is that knowledge mobilization is often conceptualized as being a very linear kind of process, right? I produce something, I put it out into the world, and then people pick it up, right? And we based our models on that for a long time, right? We send out emails, we blast things out, and after all, we blast it out, so therefore you should know it. And that has dominated knowledge mobilization for a long time. And I think in our work, we're really trying to push on this relational element that actually knowledge mobilization is not a linear process. It moves through networks, it's complicated, but at the end of the day, it's deeply relational. And attending that deeply relational element is really critical, I think. Let me just pause there and just check in with any members of my team if there's anything they want to add and then turn it over to Taylor. I would also add that we use the word knowledge rather than evidence intentionally because we take knowledge to be not just research evidence, but also evidence derived from practitioners, policy folks, other forms of data. And when we think about knowledge mobilization in this relational kind of multi-directional way, all of that knowledge is becomes co-constructed between the different parties. So it doesn't reside in one section, but that co-constructing piece, that back and forth, that multi-directional piece, which is the way knowledge mobilization works, that's really key to understanding what is actually being mobilized as well. Yeah, the pieces around where knowledge resides really resonates with me, Alan, from your points from my decade in government service, you think about all of the knowledge that's generated and public resources that are dedicated to things that are then stored in PDFs and not accessed. There's a real, there's a real opportunity there. I love the talk around the relational components of it. So I think that might be a great segue to some of, to, to Taylor on how you see knowledge mobilization in your world. Yeah, thank you. I 
was thinking as Alan was talking about this notion of another way to think about this is that there are knowledge producers and then there are knowledge users, specifically in the research world, that is people who are producing research often in academies. And it can reflect a bit of the supply piece of the economics of evidence use as opposed to who's going to ultimately end up using knowledge, which is not just research, but various forms of knowledge, are people like policymakers and other kinds of decision makers, even people in industry. Another way to also think about this sort of supply and demand phenomenon and how Alan says it's not that simple, it's not a linear process is if you, for example, thought about how if farmers were to merely produce wheat it would not be consumed readily by consumers and users. There needs to be a process of synthesizing or distilling it into a usable form. And so there is this intermediary process between creating knowledge and ultimately using it. And the so the way that I think about that in my work is that there's a real structural divide between our academies and our policymaking entities where there's there's a gap between being produced and research that's being used, it can also be understood through a structural lens. There's not really a responsible party for bridging and brokering connections across these worlds. And so thinking about it from that lens is there's a real need for intermediaries to be able to help make these connections and synthesize and distill evidence in usable forms for decision makers who need it at the right time in a relevant kind of way. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Taylor. And the farmer analogy, I think, is a really good one. It also occurs to us that we're doing this, <clears throat> that, that we often, if we think about the investment of resources there is an enormous amount of resources that gets invested in the knowledge sort of production side, however you want to think about it. And I think all of us are reducing all this complexity to say these two sides for the sake of having this conversation. Of course, we want to recognize there's a lot of nuance and subtlety, et cetera, that goes on. But just for the sake of sort of pushing the argument a little further than all of our teams are trying to do. And I think if we conceptualize this, we often spend a lot, an enormous amount of resources on that production side, right? Investments in knowledge production and generating new practices and resources, et cetera. And all of that is really important. So I don't want any of the listeners to walk away thinking that we're not saying that's important. That's critically important. We spend very little resources on that transfer idea, like how do we make it into forms that people can access? How do we actually get what's being produced out into the world? There's very little resources that get expended on that, right? I think in some ways, it's not considered like as interesting, right, to figure out how to move this stuff. But I think what Taylor's work is trying to show and what certainly what our work is trying to show is that's actually a fundamentally important part of what the puzzle is. People are constantly wringing their hands like, oh, if only we knew more about X, Y, and Z, when it turns out there's an abundance of knowledge around X, Y, and Z. It's just that we haven't leveraged it. And as Mimi beautifully describes, that knowledge can reside in a bunch of different places. <clears throat> it doesn't necessarily just have to be in the academy. It can exist in a bunch of different places. And more than that, that interaction between those folks that are producing, those folks that are using it, if that's a real interactive process that we think is really critical. I would also argue that the transfer of knowledge should be bidirectional because Alan, you're right. A lot of times there is a lot of information or knowledge about something, but sometimes there's not. And so sometimes policymakers are asking questions that represent the public interest or the public value set in ways that people in the academy may not understand because it's not their job to have the finger on the pulse of the public value and the public interest. It's the policymaker job to do that. And so in some ways, these connections between worlds should also support that's more geared toward answering valuable questions for the common good. Yeah. Just one point on this, Michael, and just because I think Taylor's raising a larger existential question for us in the academy. And that existential question is, 
shouldn't we in fact be producing the kind of knowledge that's directly useful for making a big changes in the world, right? So th this raises other larger questions. Again, when you hear us talk, we're not talking about either or, we're talking about both and here. We know that knowledge needs to be produced, general important knowledge needs to be produced. We also recognize that while we're focused on the rigor of our work, we need to be focused on the relevance of our work. And I think this is a larger conversation around higher education entities. And thanks, Taylor, for, <laughs> I mean, raising that existential crisis, honestly, that I think we have to face in higher education. Well, we're friends of existential crises here on the podcast. I actually have another one to raise that's that, that Mimi inspired me to think about a little bit. Think a little bit about the authentic co-creation of knowledge from inclusion of practitioners and those outside of the academy also supports an argument around equity and inclusion that represents lived experience as well, too. So I think that's an important benefit, too, that we need to think outside of what the academy can do and what and a monodirectional kind of transfer of knowledge and think about how it can be co-created. I, I really like Mimi's points on that. So that that's just throwing that out there. I don't know if anyone has any thoughts. Um, like we said, we, are, we take a network perspective. So when you actually look at the network of around a particular topic, it's really interesting to see the mix of policy folks over here, or there's practitioners over here, some researchers, and the way that those different that those different groups interact in either communities with each other or with themselves, and who's connecting whom. When we take that network perspective, we can really see how that knowledge moves in those multidirectional ways back and forth between these various groups of people all contributing. So what are some barriers to successful uptake and mobilization of knowledge? You Alan, a little bit, is it intangibility? Is it a lack of sex appeal? Is it, it makes sense that there's a large infrastructure and workforce surrounded the generation of knowledge, but it's incipient around the area of translation of knowledge and ensuring that work is relevant. I wonder if we want to think about what are some barriers to making this more of a reality? Yeah, it's a really good question. I want to just make some space for my other two teammates, Anita and Martin. Do you have some initial thoughts on that? And then we can jump in. One of the barriers is that if you are a practitioner and you have very good knowledge and information that you are, that can be relevant for a whole group of people, it's very difficult to be heard and to be seen in these kind of spaces that we're looking at. So it's one of the, it's a barrier that we identified. And that's why we try to provide means and tools to give to show where these people are and all the good knowledge and information that they have. As such, it is a barrier. It's you're just a small droplet in the pond, but then there are ways that we can use to filter out these people and to put a lens on them and to zoom in and make this type of knowledge available. It's a barrier, but we can try to put immediately turn it into something positive. I would like to kind of highlight something that Taylor said before, that people who produce knowledge often don't have like the understanding with people who need the knowledge actually need. And we know from research that, for example, educators use knowledge if they think it's relevant to the context and to what they, the content, if they think it comes from a trustworthy source, if they think it's actionable and beneficial to them. And I think one of the challenges is that some of the knowledge that is out there seems like all these to some, is perceived like that by educators, but it's actually not good knowledge that serves equity and improves education. Another challenge is that not all evidence-based resources are perceived by educators as trustworthy, as beneficial, as relevant. So... To make this connection, the network bit is very important and these kind of bi-directional relationships and back and forth that is part of knowledge mobilization. So resource architects, how we call knowledge brokers who create resources as well as broker them to people that need it, that they can take into account what the people that they want to reach actually need and what they deem as relevant and beneficial for them so that they can hone their messages, they can try to bridge this gap and really make sure that their messages and resources reach the right people at the right moment. 
Yeah, I think one last barrier, Michael, is that, and Anita's done a beautiful job of outlining some of those key elements. But I think another one is that it requires a paradigm shift. We've been caught in thinking about this in very technical, rational kinds of ways, right? That people, people when presented with all manner of evidence, people will inevitably choose the best piece of evidence and apply it to them based on a variety of different things. We've also thought about this as a technical, rational way in terms of like, oh, we produce stuff and we sent it out, therefore people should have it. And that sort of way of approaching the world has dominated for a long time in this space. And I think what our all of our projects are suggesting here is that it's a shift to more relational sets of interactions. For example, if you, you can think about your own life for this. If you are trying to make a decision on something, you're more likely to reach out to somebody with whom you have some stronger tie, social tie with to ask you for advice about what it is you ought to do. You don't, you need some plumbing work done. I'm going to reach out to somebody I know who has either just had some plumbing work done or who might even be a plumber and they're going to make a set of suggestions because I have a strong affective connection with them I'm more likely to uptake whatever it is they tell me to do without going and investigating the multitude and range of things one can do in all things plumbing so if we know that these relational connections are really important to us why do we suddenly think they disappear when we're trying to move knowledge? And so I think one of the barriers is just this sort of technical, rational approach to this and not thinking of it in a much more relational and networked kind of way. And I know that's also some of the work that Taylor and her team do as well. So I'll turn it to her for a second. Yeah, so I keep coming back to this notion of what's sexy because <laughs> Michael raised it. And I do think that that is a bit of an elephant in the room in some ways is like, why is no one doing this spanning? It, who's responsible for that? No one sees it as part of their job. But what re resonated with me is I actually had a conversation with evidence-based policy consultants, Ted McCann, recently. And he said, he said something that kept sticking with me. He said, it's easy to get evidence into policy because no one cares. And he said it as a plus in that no one's going to disagree with you or fight with you over evidence. But we also talked about the other side of the coin. And that is that because no one cares and it's harder to build coalition and consensus around like evidence champions, it's kind of a wonky topic itself is to Who's going to be that leader of just making evidence matter? And I think that's maybe even part of the reason why we see our academies not even see their role necessarily in this process of not just producing, but mobilizing evidence. And so it becomes this institutional barrier as well, it is thinking about in what ways should our research institutions be involved in both sides? I've actually been doing some deep thinking about this lately. And in some ways, you do see our policymaking communities do create some roles for understanding and interpreting evidence, especially as more evidence-based policy work picks up steam, you see them creating more expectations and committees for reviewing evidence, or they have a congressional research survey, administrative reviews of evidence. But I don't see the same thing happening in our academies to the same extent. Maybe this is part of a larger conversation about the role of universities in supporting community engagement and changing tenure requirements of their research professionals. But I, I think that the question about tenure requirements also is something that we should be really curious and interested in because it is necessary that researchers have some recognition of when they're going above and beyond just research production. But I also would warrant some caution about attributing this to an individual responsibility because this is not an individual problem. It's not an individual level. It is a structural problem in that we have a divide between institutions. And so I actually challenge our research institutions to think about their role in a more systematic fashion of how to nurture that m knowledge mobilization from the academy itself. Wonderful. And any thoughts on that or responses? I think this is critical. This is sort of what it harkens back to what we were talking about before, right? You could easily boil down the work that we all are doing to this notion about like 
moving knowledge from one place to another and trying to like get it in accessible terms to get it out. But actually, I think the work we're trying to do is something quite revolutionary. We're attempting to model for institutions the critical importance of doing exactly this. And to Taylor's point, as someone that comes from a top research university, this is something that's incredibly important to us, that we've got to be valuing and incentivizing this kind of work. But it also, if you look at, even if we track all the way back and we look at PhD training programs or ED training programs, we're also not having these kinds of discussions in those programs either, right? So you get a bunch of folks that come out of programs, they enter in, that, that don't have very much capacity and skills around this. So you might have a lot of curiosity. And then they enter institutions that don't have support for this sort of thing. And then we say to them, as Taylor's making the point, like, go forth and disseminate. <laughs> and so the structures aren't there to support them. The incentives aren't there to support them. And the capacity building isn't there to support them. So I don't say it lightly when I say actually the work we're collect all of us here on this podcast are collectively attempting to do is a fundamental shift in the way that we view knowledge and the movement of that knowledge, each in our own way. And this idea about collective responsibility for the knowledge of mobilization for the public good is one of the most important things we can do as we move forward into the future. This is critical right now. And I think left unattended to, I'm really concerned that we will just spiral into places in which anyone can create their own knowledge and there it is and evidence doesn't matter and all of this other business. We really got to take this really seriously. And I'm sure it's been the case for Taylor that no one ever argues with us about this. It's like, yeah, this is a really important thing. You go do that thing. And so I think it's, we've got to create some rally cry for fundamental changes and shifts here. I agree about the cultural shift. And I think that even as evidence of some, I don't know, maybe bellwether here is the level of uptake from the research community of doing work with the model, the research policy collaboration. As an example, over the last year, over 700 researchers who identify with child and family-related policy agreed to participate in this model. That's actually a lot of people, United States-based researchers primarily. And we actually are pursued by a large number of junior scholars every year for our training program because of exactly what you're saying, Alan. The, the, our PhD programs are not necessarily teaching how to mobilize evidence and what it means to achieve a higher social impact or public good of your research. Here, a lot of junior scholars, they come to me and say that they're really frustrated with just this insular publication model where my research is reaching other researchers, but it's not having its intended benefit. That's why they seek out our training program because they're looking for opportunities to make their research more meaningful. And I believe that's a big reason why researchers agree to participate in the rapid responses that we do with Congress. They are looking for an avenue to achieve social good, even if it's not currently being rewarded and recognized by our academies in the way that we'd like it to be. Yeah, I think we're learning a lot in this space, certainly with your trainings and the work we're doing with our use case partners who are just incredible groups of folks. There's some important something for us to be saying to the wider world in this space, I think, Taylor, is that you are very busy in making sure we're building the capacity, making these connections. At the same time, you're studying this. We are doing exactly the same thing. And we are also not trained, any of us, to be research, to be running research and development projects, which is essentially what Taylor's running and what we're running. It's we're doing the research and we're developing at the same time. That's it's a significant lift and a really important one. And this is one of the things that is so critical. Like when you meet the folks on our team here, like we are also collectively as a team raising the next generation of scholars who will move into these positions. And through the work with the SOS NetLab and others, like I remain immensely hopeful for the future, knowing that Taylor's connecting with all these folks. I think the future is a really bright one as long as we continue making this case and making it in an impassioned and evidence-based way. Alan, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I think that we also should be very careful as, you know, the culture hopefully does shift and we value more public benefit 
facing work of our academies. But we also have to be careful about doing so in a way that's going to achieve its intended impact. I'm a program evaluator by training. And so I like to think about how we need to go beyond just good intentions and have measurable results. And so I think that's something that your team and my team share is this is not just trying to figure out solutions and strategies for how to achieve a public good of research, but also how to measure its impact and think about it from an effectiveness lens so that we can make sure that we're being good stewards of our finite resources in this area of boundary spanning. This is totally right. In fact, we as a team have this sort of funny experience where like, oh yeah, yeah. so we built SOS NetLab and our partners are busy using it and leveraging it and everything else. And all of us are saying, and now we need to figure out what's the impact of what it is that we're doing. Like what actually happens when you twist the flex capacitor to 11? And so they were like, well, you built it already. Like, aren't you done? And we're like, hell no, we're not done. We still have to figure out whether or not this thing we built does what we think it's going to do and what we intend it to do. And I think that's what's been great about seeing something on the inside of your project, Taylor, and seeing the inside of our project is that we're baking in those assessments along the way. We're looking at that data along the way to see what those kind of impacts are and adjusting accordingly as we go to make sure that we're being really responsive. So... I know I'm hogging the time. I'm sorry. Let me just say one more thing because this is like got me at the t- seat edge of my seat is that just to reiterate, most models model of knowledge mobilization are not being evaluated. And it's this striking irony, right? Is that we pride ourselves and this is what science says. Science needs to reach the hands of people who can use it and have achieve public benefit. And while there's some efforts that are being done to try and move the needle, most of them by and large are not evaluated. And that's not just true of public policy, but even community engagement efforts as a whole. And a good example of where we have both opportunity, but need to think carefully is this notion in even federal funding landscape now offers this opportunity to achieve broader impacts. And how those broader impacts are achieved may not necessarily have measurable results because most of our models are not evaluated. And so how do we know that these federal dollars for broader impacts are actually achieving anything? I would argue we don't. Amen, sister. (laughs) That's all I got, Michael. Amen. Thanks for joining our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Mic drop. More work to be done. (laughs) Come by next week when we say amen, brother. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I love it. We've covered a lot in just a short moment here, kind of the system level. We're talking about actualizing the academy. We're talking about reforming incentive structures, talking about promotion and tenure. We've talked about measurement and evaluation of these broader structures. I didn't want to step back a minute because something that Anita said earlier triggered something for me, and it's really around trusting sources of information. I want to talk a little bit because of its hyper-relevance to our current environment in the world. Let's talk about myths and disinformation a little bit and about validation and gravitas and why and how we decide what is valid, right? In certain settings, we rely on the gravitas of degrees and accreditations, the methodological rigor of the academy for greenlighting the validity. And then other areas, Alan, you mentioned like the personal network connection, right? The human interaction. So I wonder if anyone has any thoughts on this area, how it relates to the mobilization of knowledge, how it's being built into your algorithm would be interesting. I'm just wondering about what, where is this big, another elephant in the room, right? One of the other members of the SOS NetLab team want to take it up because I've been sucking up the air as well. What triggers me immediately, you're perfectly correct in terms of misinformation, disinformation, echo chambers, all these types of things. So that's something, definitely something we have to uh, take into account. And that's, I can just speak for our project. Well, we use natural language processing and machine learning. And I don't want to nerd out on this, but the main idea is basically that we know from research that the algorithms that you usually use in order to filter out these types of noise and 
unfunny business, to put it a little bit differently, is they're also biased by basically your background. The algorithms are biased in the first place. And that's why we use the work that we do with our partners in order to identify these biases in the algorithms and then adjust the algorithms accordingly. And we use different, the tools that are already there and slightly modify them and change them to come up with a toolkit that is not only addressing it from the get-go, but also incorporating all the different pieces of information that we get from our practitioners and partners, because one person can only know that much about a certain bias. So if we pull all that information together, it still becomes a um, like the race in Alice in Wonderland, where you always have to keep on running just to stay in the same spot. But if we do it collaboratively and co-creatively, just like the knowledge mobilization process that we have been describing, also on the technical level, taking the partners on board and they don't have to program anything, but just telling them, okay, what for example, creating dictionaries or what types of words do we have to be careful when we look at these types of things, then we can visualize them. We can show what type of echo chambers are talking about what topic in which way. And then we can either depending on what the content is either filter them out immediately because we do not stand for this type of thing. Or we say, okay, this is kind of a gray area. And we just want to inform people, okay, this is where these people are talking about X and try to be academically objective as much as we can. Thanks, Martin. I think that's a really nice description of how we're trying to tackle this really intense problem, Michael, that you've identified, is that we're living in these divisive times and this divisive world right now, and everyone seemingly has evidence for anger, right? I think this is the way that I think about this, is that I think it's about nuance in a way, right? Like, so science and scholars, we're about nuance. You ask us a question and you say like, hey, does this reading program work or not, right? A general public and the, what the general public is looking for is us to say yes or no. We never say that. We always say it depends, right? It's the nuance of the argument. And I think what's got obliterated is the nuance of the argument, right? And so people have moved over the nuance in favor of tell me if it's this or that. And this has happened quite a bit. And so in our work, like, we have done work before in breastfeeding, which is another kind of interesting health space. We're looking at the movement of misinformation and disinformation in the health space related to breastfeeding. And not surprisingly, some of the misinformation had as much uptake as some of the like evidence-based information. And at the risk of like singing the same song over and over, I think this has to do again with where we're getting the information and the sets of interactions we have from the information. So the way we're identifying these echo chambers is who's interacting with whom around a particular space. And it just turns out when folks do that, they just reinforce those opinions and they become echo chambers. And echo chambers are really hard to break into unless somehow you can bridge into them in some kind of a way. So I guess what I want to say is, again, that I think we've got to be paying way more attention to the sets of social interactions. If we look at some of our public health policies, particularly around COVID, like we thought presenting the evidence was enough, right? If only we got the evidence in people's hands about vaccines, then they would make good decisions and go and do their thing. But that didn't turn out to be the case. We didn't take enough of this social influence role to recognize how we actually move knowledge and evidence in these different spaces. So we're in this really interesting space. And I think the other thing the general public we don't support enough is like being able to analyze like when presented with information that is seemingly contrary, like how do you evaluate the veracity of that information? It's not something we're teaching in schools specifically. We're going to need to do more of that. We're not building people's sense of network literacy to understand where the connections are and how that might influence. So I think it suggests yet another set of capacity building that are necessary in this space. And Taylor, I know that in, in a lot of your settings, the matchmaking process relies on the ethos associated with folks coming from the community or practitioner space and showcasing their expertise to, to government audiences. But I wonder if there's any consideration there around what dis and misinformation means in the RPC context. 
So the work that I do, it, even though we are a nonpartisan entity, we work with politicians and politicians are part of a giant system of political influence. That is that there's one individual legislator and that individual's behavior is constrained by things that range from public opinion to party lines to things that are happening in the media. And so when you look at examples like what happened in the pandemic, it would be very difficult to expect one single legislator to stick their neck out and go against a tidal wave of public opposition to things like masks, regardless of what the evidence says. And so I think that we have to be really practical in understanding what we can expect in a political context and what that means. That said, there are some things like breastfeeding or maybe substance use, things that are not as politically cemented, where there's a lot more opportunity, I think, to work with legislators in carefully messaging what is more accurate evidence. One thing that I was really optimistic by is we conducted a study during the pandemic by disseminating evidence around social issues during the pandemic. We were actually able to see in a randomized experimental trial, legislator, state legislators who received those fact sheets were more likely to use evidence language around the pandemic when they were exposed to these interactions from researchers and their fact sheets. I think that What's exciting about that is that legislators play a huge role in the public discourse and are able to provide, if they are providing accurate information, it could potentially help to create some balance of information that's out there in the ethos. But more, even more exciting to me is that by getting evidence, legislators talk about evidence, they're potentially adding something to the discourse that wasn't there already. I highly doubt that you're going to see someone change, legislator change their vocal opinion about something that's as contentious as some of the pandemic policies. But whether or not they can be proactive in explaining what is effective in something about a less political issue, it, there's a m much greater opportunity there when their behavior is not already so constrained by incredible political forces. Just even as an example of that, correct me if I'm wrong, y'all, but I'm pretty sure that Trump got booed for suggesting to a crowd to vaccinate. And so this wasn't just a Trump phenomenon. There's a public will out there and I'll go ahead and say I have family members who are still not vaccinated. And that's just part of their social culture is medical aversion. I don't know that we were ever going to convince people who had this sort of disdain of the system to suddenly change their behavior. And so a lot of what we have to contend with as a scientific community is that, yes, we need to rely on these social networks and finding ways to elevate champions of the message but we also need to re recognize that there are broader social forces that are going to restrict or constrain how successful we can be when we're shouting into a sea of people. And we're not going to change people's values. That's a big thing. We have to understand what those values are and understand the existing beliefs and, and figure out ways that we can support people and meet them in the middle. Great. Thank you for your both really thoughtful answers around a continuing and a really dangerous challenge in modern society. I've heard both of you, both groups talk today a little bit about partnerships, partners. I wanted to talk a little bit about that. We're all part of networks. We're all components of larger systems. So I don't know if you wanted to talk about some of your partners in some of this work, whether it be the diverse funding community, uh, the partners in dissemination or testing. I want to have a chance to talk about how the different groups come into this. Yeah, I think that's a really great question because it's central to who we are. Mimi, do you want to talk a little bit about our use case partners and what we've been doing with them and how we forged and you in particular really work to forge those relationships? Sure. So we have partners that range 
throughout different levels of the education system. We've got we work with people who work directly with teachers, who work with districts, who work with out of school, like informal learning networks, informal learning settings, and people who work at state policy level and intermediary organizations. So we're trying to tackle the um, education in the United States specifically, but also internationally from a really diverse perspective that way. Yeah. And I think one of the things is that, so we're operating at all these different levels of the system that Mimi outlined for you. So ranging from the classroom up to state policy, out to foundations. So it's a quite a big range of folks. In there, we have some state policy folks. So we're not as focused directly on policymakers in the same thoughtful way that Taylor and her team is. We're in the sort of broader education space. Uh, but these partners are honestly the ones that make it go. So when we talked about this SOS NetLab, we all had a vision of what this thing could be, right? The sort of the Amazon and the social network coming. And we knew it had to be something networky. And we probably, if you left the four of us alone in a room, would have come up with something. But we chose not to do that. So everything we have done has been co-designed and co-developed step in step with our partners. So our partners are also co-creators and co-designers along the way. And we think that's been a fundamental shift in the way that oftentimes people approach partners in these development kinds of projects, right? Usually we prepare something, we get it in front of people, we're like, okay, go use it. In this way, we've built this from the very ground up with our partners. It wouldn't have happened without our partners. And to be really like transparent, the relationships that Mimi, Anita, and Martin have formed with our partners are strong, deep ones in which our partners can be vulnerable. We in turn can be vulnerable with them about the struggles that we're having. And we've built these strong ties and these strong ties are necessary for doing the deep work of development. Absent that, we can never have created what it is that we created. So partnership is key. Anita, who's also been working really closely in this space, I think has a few words to share about this as well. Yeah, thank you. So to build on what Alan and Mimi said, we select these partners because they are very effective in mobilizing knowledge. They not only rich knowledge producers and people who use the knowledge, but they produce knowledge and are very successful in bringing that knowledge into the hands of people who need it. And so we wanted to work with these partners because they can inform our understanding of knowledge mobilization and they really know what the tool needs to give them so that they can do their job even better and even more effectively. Yeah, it's a good point, Anita. When we did our selection point of partners, of course, we had a lot of folks we could choose from, but we were looking for folks that were equity focused. That's really incredibly important to our work and evidence based. And Martin mentioned earlier a little bit about some of the algorithms. We're also, Martin has been spearheading some work in which we're having folks on our team that are focused on not creating algorithms that replicate structural inequities, but actually challenge them. So we are aware of our bias in which we're approaching our work. In fact, if you were to look at our sosnetlab.com website, you would see a statement on there in which we talk about bias and what that means and how we're trying to be really present and alert to that and to grow from it. And so we're actively seeking partners too that are also questioning those spaces because we don't want to be part of the structural replication of these inequities. We want to challenge them and show that technology can be a force for good in these spaces for connecting to those communities. I'll jump in here on my side of the partnerships with the research policy collaboration. It is a model that can be replicated by different partners and that allows it to be able to be scaled for use among different scientific disciplines in different scientific homes. As an example, we have, we have partnerships with someone named Jenny Knoll in child maltreatment. It is one of our core issue areas that we work with the support of her and the funding she's received from P50. So this model can be replicated with funding that is as modest as like a medium-sized endowment budget item in the P50 or even sized philanthropic grant. We've received support from Francesca Lopez, another partner of ours, 
who was successful in achieving one of those medium-sized philanthropic grants that supported our ability to work with congressional offices around K-12 education policy and racial equity in those policies. We were recently awarded by the Kauffman Foundation to expand our work to be able to cover research translation on entrepreneurial research, which is a really exciting opportunity for us to to really build our capacity to do more business-related policy. We're also looking to expand into other disciplines, but also state-level work. And so I think that the way that we view these partnerships has started to prepare us down an avenue of growth because we see this as being a replicable model that entities can use to achieve policy impact of their research. I also should call on WT Grant Foundation, which has supported our evaluation, experimental randomized controlled trials. Um, The study I mentioned during the pandemic was also supported by the National Science Foundation. And so what I'm really excited and motivated to see the sort of interest that's been generated among both federal and philanthropic entities, because research funders are a critical piece of the evidence ecosystem in shaping how knowledge is both produced and could be mobilized. Excellent. Thank you. Yeah, I just wanted to give everyone the opportunity to realize that we're not just alone in the woods on this. It's a larger effort. And also for the sake of our listeners, the P50 is a large-scale specialized center from the National Institutes of Health. And we'll have lots of information in our show notes that can disentangle some of the harder to grasp questions and some of the details that we've discussed today. Alan, did you have something? Yeah, I was going to mention that just to build on Taylor's point here, I think we were fortunate enough early, early innings before SOS Net Lab to be funded by the WT Grant Foundation to do work in the research evidence. We were one of the first ones to be funded to do that kind of work. And they've been doing some really groundbreaking work. And the fact that they're supporting Taylor and her team is not surprising. Like she's working directly in this space. We've also been really lucky. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has also been really supportive of our work. And it's been, of course, the financial support is important for us to do what we need to do. But actually, what's been probably more powerful is some of the intellectual support and the partnership work we've been done doing with them and helping us just to think through some of these different avenues. So I think it's a really important point that we're seeing this wider partnership and support of the work, as well as the partners that we all have in actually doing the work. And one last point to make on this, and it's something we've just been seeing coming up in our work, and I'm imagining Taylor has seen this in her work too. We, of course, we acknowledge the affective filters and the uptake of knowledge on the people that are attempting to use the knowledge, right? Like how they respond to it, how they interact with it. But also noticing like our own partners are going through their own process, right? They have their own affective filters. They have their own ways of approaching and thinking about things. And we've been also trying to do more thoughtful work around the learning trajectories that are occurring with the folks that we're actually working with. And I'm imagining that must also be the case with Taylor and her group, that the folks she's working with, she could probably see their learning trajectories, affective filters when things seem to get in their way. And I think we actually have to probably spend a little bit more time, not in the podcast, but in our work, in attending to the care, feeding, and nurturing of the learning trajectories and the affective filters of the folks that are actually attempting to do this really important work, not just the stuff they're attempting to get across, and not just the affective filters and learning journeys of the folks that are receiving the knowledge. So I think it's incumbent upon all of us that are doing this important work to really be mindful and thoughtful about the affective and cognitive state of the folks that are actually doing the work which of course is critical to the care and feeding of all partners. Wonderful. So I do have just two questions left that I feel like we can't leave undiscussed. Really, this is broadly for the whole group, but what does the future look like for this area, for your efforts? What are some lessons learned that we can lean into and try to replicate and grow as we go forward? I'm particularly motivated or enthusiastic that I see what I believe may be the beginning of culture shift in academic institutions. I think we have a long ways to go, but seeing attempts to improve recognition of scholarly engagement in the tenure process at certain universities is a huge step. I saw 
that Colorado State University launched an innovative program to train some select faculty as honest brokers that were bridging research and policy. I think that I'm optimistic that these situations in our academies won't be rare and unheard of, but will become more and more commonplace until we reach a tipping point. I think that university administrators recognize the need for improving the public image and the recognizable benefit of the work that's happening in the academy, and they're taking steps to get there. Yeah, I think that along those same lines, supporting the work of knowledge mobilization as we support knowledge mobilization itself. So supporting those people who are engaged in knowledge mobilization to improve their craft as we research and learn more about this process. I would like to add to what Mimi just said. I think not just supporting people who do knowledge mobilization, but also learning from those who do it very successfully so that then other people can benefit from that knowledge. And I think I'm excited about that, like in like broader terms. And then for our project, I'm very excited to, to improve our tool in collaboration with our partners, take their insights on board, their feedback, and really make it something that is beneficial for them and then in the future for other knowledge mobilizers as well. And I promised myself to get a Star Trek quote into this. So <laughs> basically for the future is to go where no man has gone before in a sense that to embrace basically the complexity of all the things with, that we described. So the complexity of knowledge mobilization and try not to focus on individual bits, which we need to do, and we already have done so successfully, but now to really integrate everything with our partners to create something that can really benefit them in their everyday lives. Thanks, Martin. By the way, and by man, we met all people <laughs> and animals and any sentient beings <laughs> that want to go where no sentient beings have gone before. So on our website, we have three words that are below SOS NetLab. And those words are explore, engage, and elevate. And those words drive us. And I think they drive the future. I think they drive the future for everyone who's on this podcast. We want to provide spaces for all of us to explore in these new ways that we haven't been exploring before. That's going to be really critical. We want to help knowledge mobilization explore new and different ways and to gather rigorous data and to really take a hard look at what we're doing, as Taylor reminds us. We want to engage with partners. We want to engage with one another. We want to engage across the spectrum because we know at the end of the day, collectively, we are better. No one wins when we continue to be isolated. No one creates when you're isolated. No one designs when you're isolated. And so the future is even more about partnerships and engaging with one another. And finally, we have to elevate. We've got to elevate this conversation as we've done in this podcast to our institutions, to funders, to the folks that are doing the really hard work every day, to those committed educators that roll up their sleeves, and face children and societies to make a better tomorrow to those policymakers that are attempting to make change for a better tomorrow and a better good. So we've got to elevate this conversation that we're having. Absent those things, absent our opportunities to explore, to engage and to elevate, I don't think the future looks as bright. But after our conversation today, I leave even more hopeful that we'll be able to do these things. We'll be able to do them together in thoughtful ways that allows us to be transparent and vulnerable and really see what's potential for the for tomorrow. I think that is an excellent summation of our conversation today and great words to, to go forward on and in this work and all of our efforts. With that, I, I do want to bring this episode to a close. Unless there are any questions or further comments from our guests, I do want to give you the opportunity for any further thoughts but I think Alan dropped the mic there. Yeah, I just wanted to thank Alan for summarizing so beautifully. I see why you're the dreamer. <laughs> That's honestly, Taylor, it's my only skill. <laughs> this is, I, I don't know anything else that's happening. They just drag me around to say pretty words. That's I just great. want to say, I just want to say thanks. And Taylor and I've had the, I've had the privilege of being with Taylor on a number of different kinds of venues. And 
I would just always leave uplifted. And Michael, big shout out to you and Melissa, who took a chance on us. We're a little bit outside of your typical venue, I think. And so thanks for inviting us to the party and for hearing a little bit about what we do. And we're looking forward to next steps with all of you. Thank you so much for everything, for bringing us together today, Michael. Appreciate it. Of course. My my thanks are to you all and, and Melissa's as well. Thank you so much for joining us. A really stimulating conversation today. We covered so many topics and at core ones to, to our society. I won't try to cap them. I will just have to listen over and over again to absorb it all. So with that, I will bring our episode to a close. So many thanks to our guests. We have Taylor Scott of the Research to Policy Collaboration, and we have our SOS Net Lab folks. We've got Alan Daly, Mimi Lockton, Martin Reem and Anita Kadouf come from all over the US and the EU as well. So we're so grateful to, to have you today. We will have their links to their bios and other information. And of course, their wonderful titles in the show notes as well. So please look for more information there. So again, I am your host, Michael Donovan, the Associate Director of the Evidenced Impact Collaborative here at Penn State University. And this has been another episode of the Evidenced Impact Podcast. If you enjoy the conversations held today, please subscribe and thank you for listening.